You're listening to the SSPX podcast and welcome to our fifth episode on the sacraments where Father David Sherry will join us to look at the sacrament of penance. Many people, even non-Catholics, are familiar with the sacrament, but we'll take a magnifying glass to it today so that we can understand more about what's going on. To do that, we'll start by looking at the concept of sin itself. This may seem almost obvious, but sin does exist. It's the whole reason for the sacrament. And then we'll take a look at the two players involved, the penitent and the priest. What is Father looking for when he asks us those questions in the confessional? And why do we have to do a penance afterwards? Aren't our sins already forgiven? Father Sherry will walk us through the traditional form of the sacrament of penance next. As we move forward in this series, we're looking for help. If you like these series and want to have more of them, you can help us by leaving a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And please share it with someone who you think would like it or appreciate it, or maybe they just need it. That's the best way to help. You're helping us with this apostolate to reach as many people as possible with the beauty and the truth of what it means to be a traditional Catholic. Now, let's join Father Sherry for episode number five of our sacrament series right now. Father Sherry, thank you for joining us. It is, uh, we were just talking a little bit beforehand because our connection is not quite perfect today because it's snowing where you are. Shocking. I'm shocked it's snowing. Anyway, thank you for joining us. Um, Today we are talking about the sacrament of penance. Um, And like we've done with previous episodes, we're going to be looking first at the traditional rite of penance and then next week looking at the new rite of the sacrament of penance or reconciliation as it's called. Um, Today, where do we start with our discussion on penance, on the sacrament itself? Should we start by looking at sin or start by looking at the priests or the minister? Or where would you like to start, Father? Thank you very much, Andrew, for having me on again today. And um, I think we should start with looking at sin because the sacrament of penance is the sacrament by which sins committed after baptism are washed away by the blood of the Redeemer just as sins committed before baptism and original sin are washed away in the sacrament of baptism. So what exactly is sin? Uh, because there's a lot of different uh, different ideas about what sin is. Um, now, we know that from our catechism that sin is a disobedience to God's law. Uh, but what does that mean? Uh, does that mean that... Um, Sin is simply contravening a whole list of things which uh, which God has made up out of nothing, as it were. So God says, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a list of things, and if you uh, contravene these, uh, you're gonna have sinned. I'm going to punish you." But actually, these things are not actually uh, necessary. Let's say for your happiness. That's the theory of Satan. Uh, you'll remember how in the book of Genesis at the beginning, uh, Eve explained to the serpent, which was the devil, either under the form of a fake serpent or else inhabiting a true serpent. Um, Eve explained, well, God told us not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan came out with one of the biggest lies ever told uh, in in history when he said, well, the reason why God has told you to do that is because he knows that if you do eat of this uh, fruit, you will be as gods. In other words, the prohibition on certain things is done by a evil God who wants to stop us from being happy. And uh, that's the lie which has come down through the ages You'll be happy if you can sin. But in reality, what sin is, it is indeed a disobedience to God's law. But God's law is like, um, it's almost like a user manual. Uh, When you think of creating something, let's say you you make a car, Andrew, and um, you say, okay, I've made a fairly nice car. It's, uh, it's, It's a good car. It works. But there are a number of things you need to do and not do. So, for example, uh, if you want your car to run well, you have to put gasoline in the the gas tank. Um, However, it would be a no-no to fill the gasoline tank with peanut butter. Uh, It's not going to work if you do that. And you see how that rule, which you, the creator of the car, have laid down, 
uh, is simply uh, following the nature of the car. And so God created man, and he, being the creator, lays down uh, a user manual. If you do this, you will work well. And if you do that, then uh, you will you'll mess yourself up. And that's effectively what the Ten Commandments are. They're the natural law, which is the law of how our nature works. If you want to uh, work well to be happy, first of all, adore the true God, give him the worship that he deserves, respect his name, and then uh, respect uh, the laws of uh, human nature regarding your neighbor. And that's the the other seven commandments. Uh, Respect your parents, respect authority, respect your neighbor, don't uh, take his life, don't take his wife, uh, don't take his goods, don't take his good name, and don't desire to do these things because the desire will lead to the sin. And um, the, uh, the, the nature of sin then is not some sort of taboo. Uh, the Catholic religion is the one religion where there are no taboos. A taboo is a rule for which there is no real reason. So, for example, uh, you could argue that it is a taboo to drive on the right side of the road. But of course, it's not a taboo at all. There's a reason for that. If everybody chooses for himself which side of the road to drive on, then we're going to have many, many accidents. And so the rule, drive on the right side of the road, is a rule which has a real reason behind it. However, on the other uh, side, you could say, well, it is forbidden for me to wear orange. Uh, the law lays down, you cannot wear orange clothes. Uh, is there a reason for that? No, it's just uh, the the ruler decided that, uh, you know, he didn't like orange, and so you're not allowed to wear orange. Now, that's a taboo. And in the Catholic religion, there are no taboos. Mm. All of the laws of God and the commandments of the church are all there for a reason. And so that's why sin, in fact, is... disobedience to God's law, but it's when you deviate from the rule. And the rule of our actions is double. There's there's two rules. There's a remote rule and there's a proximate rule. So there's one rule which is close to us, and that rule simply is right reason. And so if you do something unreasonably, that's a sin. Uh, For example, if I were to decide that I really like Uh, the dog that you have, Andrew, Um, I want your dog. And so I help myself when I'm passing your house one night, uh, get get a couple of uh, juicy bones out to attract the dog into my truck, and off I go with your dog. Well, it's not bad for me to like your dog. It's not bad for me to give a dog a home, but it is bad and unreasonable for me to take your dog. And so that's a sin. And so a sin is a deviation from the right rule. It's what Aristotle said, to miss the mark. It's you're aiming at living a good life, you're aiming at doing good actions, and you miss. That's a sin. Now, the rule is double, however, because the thing about my reason is that I'm quite apt to get it wrong. Uh, You may be familiar with the book written by St. Thomas More called Utopia, in which he... uh, lays down the story of this uh, mythical land, uh, utopia, in which there is the ideal civilization. But in this land, there is no knowledge of the true God. There is rather a natural knowledge of God. And because of that, their reason, which seems to guide everything that they do, in fact leads them to do things which are bad. Uh, For example, in utopia, there is euthanasia. You kill off those who are too sick to survive. Uh, There is also uh, a situation whereby encouraging your enemy to kill himself, his ruler, is a good thing. And uh, you see how what St. Thomas More was trying to do was to try to show that reason will only bring you so far. If, If you have only reason and you use it with the best of intentions, you will end up doing all sorts of things which are absolutely terrible. And that's why he describes this totalitarian state, which is utopia. 
Best of intentions, terrible consequences, good consequences in some ways, but terrible consequences in other ways, because reason needs to be guided by God. And that's the remote rule of our actions. It is God, the author of nature, and God, the revealer of truth. And so my reason needs to be conformed to God. And if I have those things, then my actions are good. But if I miss the mark, I have sin, and sin is uh, an evil. Now, let me just introduce a little distinction here uh, for our listeners uh, who probably know it already, but it's the difference between grave sin, mortal sin, and venial sin. So a mortal sin is called mortal because it kills the life of the soul. The life of the soul is God, and we are united to God in baptism by sanctifying grace, which renders our soul uh, godlike and makes us share in God's own life. Now, a mortal sin is something which is a grave sin, that is a serious matter, and it's also something that I must have full knowledge in doing and full consent in doing. So, for example, if I were to have a a small matter, um, I tell a little lie. So, for example, um, I was a little ashamed that I didn't put out the garbage for collection this morning. And my wife asks me, did you put out the garbage? And I say, yeah, that's a that's a lie. It's, it's a sin, but it's a venial sin because it's not a grave matter. However, if I were to go to court and there in the court, the judge were to ask me, did you see this man commit the crime? And I did see him, but I'm scared of witnessing to that or I have some sort of Uh, iron in the fire that I need to protect. And I say, no, I did not see him commit the crime. That would be a grave sin because it's a grave matter. And so uh, a mortal sin is one in which there is a grave matter, but also I need full knowledge. I have to know that is a serious sin. Uh, There was a case in England about uh, 10 years ago or so, Andrew, where a man killed his wife during the night. Uh, They were in in a caravan, an RV, And uh, during the night, uh, she must have turned in her sleep, and he, in his sleep, thought that he was being attacked, and he killed her. And in the morning, he woke up, and uh, he found the body of his dead wife. And he was promptly arrested by the police, because obviously he had killed his wife. But when the case came to court, the judge said that he was innocent, because he didn't know what he was doing. He had a history of sleepwalking. Uh, There was no evidence whatsoever that he didn't get on with his wife. In fact, they were very happy together. But he did a grave matter. He killed his wife, but it wasn't a grave sin because he didn't know what he was doing. In fact, it wasn't a sin at all because he was asleep. Um, And then finally, full consent. You have to want to do it. So let's say I force somebody to commit a sin, a mortal sin. They know that it's a mortal sin, but I force them to do it then it's not actually uh, a grave sin for them. Uh, Here's a counterexample of that, whereby something which isn't a grave sin, if I think it is, is in fact a mortal sin for me. In the life of St. John Bosco, he tells the story of the boy who looked at the moon. Uh, What happened here was that a young boy was told by an older boy that it's a mortal sin to look at the moon. And he believed it. And this is obviously wrong of the older boy. We should never uh, tell children that something is evil when it isn't. But the younger boy really believed it. And so he didn't look at the moon. And then one day, one night rather, there was uh, one of these uh, super moons when the moon seemed enormous and the boy cracked and he looked at the moon. And then he said to himself, well, that was really stupid. I should never have committed that mortal sin. And so he didn't confess this sin. But he thought it was a sin, and he had full consent for doing it. And he never confessed it, and so he lived in that state until he came to die, and he went to confession to St. John Bosco. And we only know this because afterwards he told St. John Bosco the story outside of confession. This is because of the seal of confession, which we'll come to later. Uh, The boy explained that he had looked at the moon, 
and said, John Bosco said, and, and so what? He thought it was a sin. <laughs> and so the full consent which we must have to commit a mortal sin, uh, he had right. for this thing which was not a mortal sin. And so St. John Bosco was able to absolve him from his sins and to tell him that it, it wasn't a sin and he was able to die in the state of grace. Um. And so you see that a mortal sin then, something which turns us away from God, is a grave matter in which I need full knowledge and I have to have full consent. Um. So this is this is the the background for for sin and obviously there needs to be some sort of a remedy which gets us to our next point about about the redeemer about about our lord uh coming to redeem us i maybe i'll ask it now father i i was thinking of asking it uh, after we talk about our lord's redemption um but before our lord came before the the redemption before the incarnation was there any sort of a remedy in the Old Testament for sin? This is a little bit of a tangent. I, we didn't talk about discussing this at all, but uh, it's something that I've, I've been curious about. Right. So in the Old Testament, uh, original sin clearly infected all of those who were born descendants of Adam. And the, the way for them to be able to be saved before the coming of the Redeemer was through faith in the Redeemer to come. And this was done or ah. passed through the, the ceremony uh, in the Jewish people of circumcision. And outside of the Jewish people, by what the fathers of the church referred to as a remedy of nature. Okay. So um, the, the God does not um, sort of give this possibility of redemption to some only, but every single human being has the possibility of being saved. Now, before the coming of our Lord, uh, grace did not flow as abundantly, but grace nevertheless was possible for those uh, born before him to be saved. Um, in short, let's imagine someone who committed a mortal sin before the coming of the Redeemer, in short, he would have to believe in the Redeemer to come and have true sorrow, perfect contrition for his sin before he died in order for him to be able to go to limbo mm -hmm. to await the coming of the Redeemer. Okay. Interesting. Well, thank you for that, for that side note, for that tangent. Um, but yes, let's, let's talk about uh, the redemption and, and how that plays a part in, in the sacrament of penance, Father. Right. So we have sin, uh, original sin, which is passed down to us from Adam. Uh, we have our own sins. We have almost the, the sins of our, of our fathers, which are passed down to us, not regarding their guilt, but regarding the example and the, uh, the culture, the, uh, perhaps in some, in some times even a sort of, uh, inherent um an inherent tendency towards sin uh which is passed down to us and what is god's reaction to all of this well god is merciful and so he decrees that man will be redeemed now this did not happen for the angels the angels sinned but god did not decree their redemption and the reason for that was not because God was not merciful, but because the angel is irredeemable. Mm. When he does something, he does it completely with full knowledge of the consequences and without any of the weakness or ignorance which may excuse some of our sins or lessen the guilt of some of our sins. And so, as St. Thomas said, whatever an angel does, he does wholly. He does with all of his being. And so the sin of the angel uh, could not be undone because of the angel himself. But the sin of man could be undone. And so God uh, decreed that God the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, would become man and would undo the damage done by sin. Now, there are different theories about how this happens. And there's two false theories I'd like to mention. One is the false theory of Luther. So Martin Luther was a Catholic priest, and he came up with his own theory of how this would happen. And he said, 
human nature is uh, completely corrupt because of original sin. We're not able to do good. And so even after we are redeemed, even after we are justified, we're still not able to do good. And so he said, sin is like, it's like a dung heap. So it's, it's something, you know, nasty. And then during the winter, as, as is happening, uh, as is happening throughout uh, Canada at the moment, uh, the snow comes and the snow is beautiful and white and it covers the dung heap so that your sin is no longer visible. And this is the justice of Christ, which is imputed on the sinner. God chooses to ignore the sin, and he looks rather at the justice of Christ, which is the snow, not the dunghill, which is our sins. And this is a false theory, which has very far-reaching consequences, of course. Uh, you perhaps saw some of the consequences in the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, affair of a couple of years ago, Effectively, you could put it down to Protestant theology. It is that, uh, and I'm not clearly uh, getting into all of the ins and outs of, of American history here, but clear, basically it was, well, the sins of the fathers are passed down to the children, and there's nothing you can do, but you are guilty of racism. And that's a very Protestant theory, which is, well, the we are all infected by original sin, true, and there's nothing you can do. You will continue to do bad works. All that you can have is have the justice of someone else imputed upon you. This is a, a false theory because it means that we're still corrupt. We're not capable of doing good, which led Luther to famously say, sin boldly, but believe yet more boldly. In other words, you can sin away, but as long as you believe, you will be saved. Um, I forget who it was who came up with a very, uh, a very uh, funny limerick about that. Uh, he said, at Wittenberg, when Luther had quitted, a young man said, now I have hit it. Since I cannot do right, I must think out tonight what's in to commit and commit it. <laughs> in other words, well, we can't not sin. All you have to do is believe. Um, now, another theory of redemption is one in which we don't have the justice of Christ imputed upon us, but rather we have a sort of natural redemption by which we just explain away sin. We say, well, sin is not really that bad after all. I mean, uh, we have said in the past that uh, sodomy is a sin, but really, if you think about it, it's something natural. In other words, it... Uh, it comes from, uh, for, for certain people, it comes from nature, therefore it must be good. And so we, we don't have to be redeemed from this sin, but rather we'll simply call it something good and virtuous. And this is the way by which someone who's sick says, well, I'm not sick. I'm, uh, I'm in good health. My blindness is perfectly natural. Uh, I'm just otherwise abled. And so I don't really need redemption. What actually happens is that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he comes to bring us redemption, which he operates by his passion and death. And this life, which he communicates to us as the fruit of his passion and death, actually justifies us and actually cleanses us from our sins. So the dung heap referred to by Luther, is not covered simply by a blanket of snow. It is actually removed. And we actually are just. We actually are good. We are, as St. Paul says, the heirs of heaven and co-heirs with Christ. We are the saints uh, because we have actually been justified by Christ. Now, this redemption is communicated to us by the sacrament of baptism. But it's important to understand that the consequences of sin, so the consequences of original sin, were fourfold. Our intellect was darkened, our will was weakened, our passions incline us to evil, and we are subject to suffering and death. All of these things are the consequence of sin, and sin was the cause. So what is the remedy so the remedy is to undo sin, and then over time, 
the consequences of sin will also be done away with. So the, the, the consequences of grace will be to heal the darkness of our intellect, to heal the weakness of our will, to heal the uh, concupiscence, the unruly desire of our passions, when they try to seek something which is not in conformity to right reason and God. And eventually, uh, at the end of time, to undo also the death of the body by the general resurrection and the eternal life, uh, which is the destiny of all those who die in this state of grace. And you see how this uh, this antidote, you could say that uh, the grace of Christ administered in baptism is like the vaccine, which slowly operates uh, in the organism to undo all of the consequences of the infection. And this is operated, first of all, by baptism. But what happens if you sin after you are baptized? What happens if you again fall from grace? And this can be undone by what the fathers call the second plank of salvation. So the first plank of salvation is baptism. And the second plank of salvation, uh, the plank being what keeps you afloat in the uh, shipwreck of sin. So the first plank is baptism. The second is the sacrament of penance. And this sacrament of penance is what makes it uh, possible for sinners to still uh, still be united with God and to obtain eternal life, even if they have sinned after baptism. So when our Lord instituted the sacraments, we've talked about this in several episodes. We talked about this at the very beginning with Father Robinson. Our Lord could have instituted this sacrament in any way he wanted, um, but he set it up in a particular way so that the penitent, the person who had sinned, who had fallen, needs to confess, needs to speak with a priest. Uh, this is in order to accuse himself or to make uh, public in a in a well, it's private, but to but to basically get the sin out of him. I am probably butchering theologically all the explanations. You'll help me clear it up. But bottom line, right. So here's where the uh, the proponents of theology fiction, you know, uh, always come out and they say, well, I don't need to tell my sins to a priest. I go directly to God. And I said to them, true, if God had set it up that way, that would be perfectly fine. And then others right. will say, well, it's just a symbol. So um, we could have some other symbol. So you had the case of the, the priest in Mexico uh, some time ago who set up that at the beginning of Lent, the members of the parish would write their sins on pieces of paper and then bring them up to the altar and insert them in a shredder. So the symbol that their sins were being forgiven. Uh, interesting symbol, but that's not how Christ set it up. So how did right. our Lord Jesus Christ set it up? And this is very beautiful, Andrew, uh, because on Easter Sunday, the sacrament of penance was instituted. The fruit of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ is the complete undoing of sin and death, the consequence of sin. And our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Easter Sunday to this new life, rede rede redemption from sin. Clearly, our Lord Jesus Christ himself was not a sinner, but he uh, adopted our nature, our human nature, and he became like to us in all things except sin and bore the burden of sin, which is suffering and death. And this triumph over the devil led to his resurrection. And he is the first, St. Paul says, of the, the firstborn of the dead, the first to rise from the dead. Clearly, others rose from the dead before him, Lazarus, for example, but they died afterwards. Uh, our Lord rose right. nevermore to die. And so what does he do? He goes and he gives the antidote to sin to his apostles. Comes in on Easter Sunday. It's in John chapter 20. And he says to his apostles, uh, peace be to you. So what is peace? Peace comes when everything is in order. Uh, peace comes 
when man is at peace with God and he is at peace with his neighbor. And our Lord gives us this peace, peace be to you. And then he says, receive the Holy Ghost, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. So note two things here. First of all, he gives the power to the apostles. The 11 apostles are together, or rather 10, because famously Thomas was not there and uh, refused to believe until the following Sunday uh, when he made the wonderful act of faith, my Lord and my God. Uh, So our Lord gives the power to the apostles, which uh, comes to them as priests. They have been ordained on Holy Thursday, when our Lord, after celebrating the first Mass, says, do this as a commemoration of me. This is the power which he gives to the apostles. Now he says, receive the Holy Ghost, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. So the power is transmitted definitely to some people. And then it's transmitted in the form of a judgment. Uh, There are two things that you can do if you commit sin. You can either wait for the judgment that God will impose upon you at at the end of your life, at the end of time. You can say, well, I've committed a sin now. I'm just going to wait until God judges me. He's going to judge you and send you to hell. Or you can go and you can confess yourself. You can go before God, your father, And you can say, I have sinned. And then the judgment which uh, will be put upon you is the judgment of mercy. But this judgment depends on the the apostles. That's why our Lord says, if you forgive them their sins, they are forgiven. But if you retain them, they are retained. That means a judgment. And it is from that that the confession of sins is necessary. Because let's imagine, Andrew, uh, you're going to confession to your parish priest. And you come up to him and you say, uh, Father, please give me absolution. And uh, the parish priest says, well, for what, Andrew? And you say, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> How is he going to be able to give you absolution? He needs to know uh, if you have sinned, uh, whether your sin was perhaps just a minor uh, lapse through weakness, or did you actually plan that uh, multi-million dollar robbery which took place down the road last week? It's, it's not the same thing. And so that's why you have to confess your sins so that the priest can judge. And that's why you'll notice in the sacrament of confession, we go to the priest and he sits down. Okay, he's not standing. He's not kneeling. Mm-hmm. He's sitting because a judge sits down. He's sitting in judgment upon you, as it were. <laughs> now, this is the beautiful thing about, about confession is that the priest who sits in judgment upon you, he's going to kneel so that another priest can sit in judgment upon him. And here's the even more beautiful thing about the sacrament of penance is that the judgment is always a judgment of mercy. Either the priest will absolve you from your sins or else if he uh, retains your sins, he will say, well, uh, you need to go and you need to sort this out before I can forgive you your sins and then come back and I will absolve you from your sins. He never say to you, no, sorry, you're beyond hope. Uh, your sins are not to be forgiven. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. Um, every sin can be forgiven as long as we are on the way, in via, on the way to heaven. As long as we're not dead, uh, our sins can be forgiven. And this is the very simple fact about confession, is that that's what it is. It's I confess my sins to he who has the authority to forgive them. And this authority does not come from himself. You'll remember how our Lord said uh, on one of his cures, he said, be of courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Jews said, who is this who can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And that's the fact, is that only God can forgive sin. But God um, operates by giving, uh, giving power and responsibility to his creatures. Just like the angels are responsible for the movement of the planets, so also parents are responsible for the procreation and education of their children. So also sinful men are responsible for the salvation of souls uh, by receiving this power to forgive sins. 
which is, like all the sacraments, Christ operating uh, using his minister as an instrument. Uh, we saw in baptism that the minister is normally, the ordinary minister is normally the, the priest, but could in fact be anyone. And in in the sacrament of penance, the minister is a validly ordained priest. But we'll come to that in a moment, if that's okay, Andrew, because I'd like to go through the steps mm-hmm. uh, of making a good confession. Very good. So you want to go to confession. Well, first of all, in order to go to confession, you have to be a sinner who is baptized. Uh, if you're a sinner and you're not baptized, then the remedy for your sins is the sacrament of baptism, by which we are cleansed of original sin and all of our sins. If you are baptized, but you're not a sinner, then uh, you probably need to uh, develop a little bit of humility. Uh, Our Blessed Mother never went to confession because she was never a sinner. She never committed any sin. But all other human beings uh, who have reached the use of reason uh, have committed sins, are sinners. And so in confession, we must confess all mortal sins committed before, uh, sorry, committed after baptism, not before baptism, after baptism, and which have never before been confessed. That is what we are, okay. are, are that's what we call the necessary matter of confession. But before you go to confession, you should examine your conscience. You know, in other words, you should uh, think to yourself, well, have I committed any mortal sins uh, since my last confession? Or have I committed any mortal sins since baptism that I've never before confessed? And these are the ones that I must confess. And I'm also going to think of venial sins, particularly those which are more of a problem for me. There are two kinds of venial sins. You've got your deliberate venial sins, which are serious in themselves. They're not mortal sins, but a deliberate venial sin is when you say, well, I know that this is uh, a sin and I'm not really going to make any effort to avoid it. That's a deliberate choosing to do something uh, which is against God's law. It's not a serious matter. Uh, therefore, it's a venial sin, but that's that's a bit of a problem. You've got a problem there. Because that's going to lead you into you getting the habit of disobeying God. It's going to become easier for you to commit a mortal sin. And then you've got your perhaps your indeliberate venial sins when you momentarily lose your temper or you um, have difficulty in doing whatever is absolutely uh, you know absolutely necessary uh, to do God's will, and you uh, you momentarily let's say lapse. Okay. Well, those are indeliberate, indeliberate venial sins, which can also be confessed. And if you're working on one in particular, then you're going to want to confess that when you go to confession. So that's the first step. Examine your conscience. The second step, and this is really crucial, is you have to be sorry. You have to be truly sorry for your sins. If you go to confession and you are not truly sorry for your sins, then how can you be forgiven? Uh, imagine uh, a child who, uh, you know, he's angry with his mother, and so he breaks one of her favorite ornaments, uh, that uh, uh, glass vase which was given to her by her husband, your father, 15 years ago. And child's angry and breaks it. And then the mother says, okay, are you sorry? And he says, no. Well, guess what? He's not going to be forgiven because he's not sorry. And so this is the key. Uh, people who do not know what confession is sometimes say, well, confession is just permission for you to sit. As long as you um, say to the priest, well, I did this, this, and this, then you can be forgiven. No. If you say to the priest that you've committed sins, but you're not sorry, you cannot be forgiven. Uh, you may fool the priest. He may think that you're sorry. But when you go out, your sins haven't been forgiven. You haven't fooled God. Uh, confession is not like a it's not like a slot machine where you sort of put in your sins, pull the lever, and you get absolution. It's the the essence of the disposition of the penitent is what uh, is called in Greek metanoia, a change of heart. That's what that's what penance is. It's a change of heart. I have sinned, but now I regret my sin, 
and I am sorry. Now, there are two kinds of regret, two kinds of sorrow for your sin, what we call contrition. Contrition can be imperfect or contrition can be perfect. Both of those are sufficient in the sacrament of penance. Let me explain the difference. Imperfect contrition is when I'm sorry for my sins because of some good supernatural reason other than the love of God. In other words, I'm sorry for committing mortal sins because I don't want to go to hell. Okay, that's a good reason for being sorrow. It's not a perfect reason, but that's enough to go to confession. Perfect contrition is when you're sorry for your sins for the perfect reason, which is, I am sorry because I have offended God whom I love. And this perfect contrition is actually enough by itself to forgive sin. That's the case of someone, let's say, who's committed a mortal sin and is dying. Is it possible for that person to go to heaven without going to confession, given that there's no possibility of going to confession? Well, the answer is yes, if the person has perfect contrition. That is, a sorrow for sin based on the love of God above all things. And that, that's a grace from God. Uh, that's not something that you can just sort of hold your breath until I get perfect contrition. It's a gift from God. And it's very difficult for any man to say, well, I've got perfect contrition. And that's why the sacrament of confession is going to uh, provide uh, a remedy for sin and peace of soul because you know that even if you only have imperfect contrition and it's it's relatively easy to be to be sorry for mortal sin because you fear going to hell we can imagine hell and we we know that that's not somewhere i want to go and then the the absolution of the priest uh, will give you forgiveness for your sins and what's more andrew it will turn you from just having imperfect contrition into having perfect contrition uh, you go into confession because you're afraid of going to hell. You come out of confession because you love God. You don't want to sin because you love God. Mm. With sorrow, and this is the third step to making a good confession, you must have a firm purpose of amendment. Getting back to the case of our boy who uh, broke his mother's vase. So, okay, he's sorry because he doesn't want to be punished. And then his mother says, right. are you going to do it again? And he says, yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> he's not actually sorry. Uh, I am sorry because I got caught, but if I get into the opportunity of not getting caught, then I'll do it again. Well, that no, that doesn't count. You have to have a firm purpose of amendment. And this firm purpose of amendment must include all mortal sins. You can't say, well, I committed the sin of murder. I committed the sin of uh, theft okay, I'm not going to do the murder again, but I might I might do the thieving again. Uh, well, I'm sorry, that's not a firm purpose of amendment for all of your mortal sins. It must be for all of them. And this firm purpose of amendment doesn't mean that you know for sure you're never going to commit the sin again. Uh, we know rather for sure that we are weak, and that if we move away from God and we grow cold in our fervor towards him and we start neglecting uh, God in small things, that we may indeed fall again. Rather, it is a determination here and now that I'm going to do whatever is necessary to avoid the mortal sin in the future. So I am used to hanging around with bad companions who lead me into mortal sin. I'm going to cut that off. Or I am used to uh, watching movies that are a grave occasion of sin. I'm going to cut them out. And that's right. a firm purpose of amendment. And then, once you have those things, you're, you've examined your conscience, you're, you have true sorrow, at least imperfect contrition, uh, you have a firm purpose of amendment for all mortal sins that you, have, that you are confessing. And if, if you have, you're not confessing mortal sins, at least one of your venial sins, then you must confess your sins. And this confession is necessary because of what we saw, that Christ instituted the sacrament in the form of judgment. The priest needs to know uh, what I have done, what I am confessing, and he needs to know whether I am sorry or not, whether I have a firm purpose of amendment. And here on confessing your sins, I just want to make a couple of points, Andrew. 
The first one is that you're not a computer. Okay, this is really for scrupulous people. They go to confession and they come out of confession and they say, oh my goodness, I forgot to confess that. Or I didn't mm-hmm. quite get the number right on that. And then they start torturing themselves. Oh my goodness, I made a bad confession. No, you did not make a bad confession. What makes a bad confession is to hide deliberately one of your mortal sins. That's a sin of sacrilege. When you go to confession and you pretend to be confessing all of your mortal sins, but actually you hide one of them through a false shame. The devil, before the sin, he said, oh, if you commit the sin, it'll make you happy. Once you committed the sin, you found out that it doesn't make you happy. The devil came along and he said, oh, that's such a bad sin. You better not tell that to the priest. He's going to go really mad when he hears that, which is completely false because doctors don't get angry because the patient is sick. They rather are, are merciful towards the patient, especially a priest knowing that he himself is a sinner. But uh, that would make a confession bad if you were to hide. Otherwise, if you make a good examination of conscience, it doesn't have to be uh, you know, very long. I mean, if you're going to confession for the first time in 60 years, then clearly it will be a longer examination of conscience. But if you went to confession last month or a couple of weeks ago, if you examine your conscience for five minutes, you will have made a good examination of conscience. And so you shouldn't worry because God knows that you're not a computer. Uh, Google may be able to make a better confession of your sins than you can. But Google cannot go to confession because Google is incapable of true sorrow. And you have a soul and you are capable of sorrow. And that's why if you were to forget, for example, a mortal sin in confession, you simply confess it at your next confession. You say, Father, I forgot to confess at my last confession such and such a sin. And that's perfectly fine. And you see how that fits in with the rule that I have to confess all of those mortal sins which I've never before confessed. So if I committed it 30 years ago and I made, you know, I made uh, 200 confessions since, since that and I forgot to confess it at each one, well, I confess it at this one now that I've remembered and that is sure. perfectly fine. Now, the Council of Trent tells us that we must in confession confess all our mortal sins by number and kind. Each sin has a name. And I must confess a mortal sin by its name. It's not enough to simply confess it in general. So I'm going to give a couple of examples now of confessions, Andrew. I'd like to reassure your uh, listeners and yourself that these are not real things which happened in confession, but I'm simply making them up. They're, They're from my imagination. Somebody goes to confession and he says, Father, bless me, Father, I've done some bad stuff. Okay. Uh... Uh, that you're confessing the fact you've you've uh, you've done something wrong, but I have no idea what it is. Uh, turns out that the bad stuff you did, well, I didn't really pay full attention when I was saying my prayers. Well, that's a that's a fairly fairly small sin, really. Um, so uh, it could also mean that I've done some bad stuff. I've committed sacrileges, Father. Okay, so you need to be more precise. So don't bother coming to confession and saying, I did bad stuff. Or people sometimes might say, oh, Father, um, I've had an inappropriate conversation. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that you spoke while your teacher was speaking? That would be inappropriate uh, for you to chat with your friend during English class. That's inappropriate. Or it could mean that you were talking about peanuts when the teacher had asked you to talk about uh, frogs. That's inappropriate. You're not doing the right thing at the right time. Or maybe you had a conversation in the church. That's inappropriate. Or it could mean that you had an uncharitable conversation. That's inappropriate. Or it could mean that you had an impure conversation. That's inappropriate. But you see how confessing it in general is not actually enough. You have to say, uh, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I have engaged in uncharitable conversation. That's all you need to say. Uh, We sometimes uh, perhaps can go to confession and start telling a whole story. Father, uh, last week, uh, you remember the day which was particularly cold? Yeah, that day. Well, when I got up in the morning, I had such a headache. And I thought to myself, gosh, I need some Tylenol. 
And so I got some Tylenol. And then the next thing is uh, the dog broke out of the fence and, you know, the whole thing grows. Eventually, so what did you do wrong? Well, Father, I used a bad word. Okay, well, you didn't need to tell me the whole story about the dog and the headache and everything else. You confess your sins in simplicity by number and kind. Uh, that is, I say what the sin is. I uh, said a bad word or I took God's name in vain or I blasphemed or I committed the sin of murder three times or whatever it is. And the priest has got no business asking for any details other than what is necessary for the actual knowledge of the sins and their number. Now, when it comes to number, of course, here can be a little bit difficult. You know, put yourself in the shoes, Andrew, of that guy who hasn't been to confession for 60 years. And he right. goes to confession and he, he he doesn't know where to start in a way. Uh, you know, how many times did I blaspheme in 60 years? You know, perhaps I was in the habit of it at some time. And so what you need to do here is remember, once again, you're not a computer. You simply do your best. You know, some sins, perhaps we remember exactly how many times we did it. Um, I, I did not attend Mass on Sunday through my own fault on two occasions. Okay, that's that's clear. Uh, but others, particularly sins of thought, perhaps, which are difficult to quantify, I should simply try to give as best I can. Uh, during a period of 20 years, Father, I was in the habit of doing drugs about three times a month. Okay, that's perfectly fine. It's not fine to be doing mm -hmm. drugs three times a month. <laughs> what is fine is the way you've right. just confessed that. It's, uh, right. it's, you've said it was approximately that number of, of times during that duration of period. Or maybe someone says, well, Father, I was living with a woman who wasn't my wife, you know, over a period of, of you know, so many months or years, etc., etc. You can't necessarily put a, an exact number on every sin. And one final thing I would say about confessing your sins, Andrew, is never to be afraid that the priest is going to react badly. Because right. the priest is not going to react badly. It's you've come to confession, not because you're proud of your sins and you're coming to boast about your sins. If that were the case, really, uh, that would be diabolical. You're coming to confession because you're sorry for your sins. And so the priest is not going to get angry, but rather he's going to remember that he himself is a sinner. And he is going to help you in any way that he can to make a good confession and to help you to get back up on your feet. That is back in the state of grace. And once again, uh, hit the road for Calvary with our Lord so that you will also come to the resurrection. Now, final step of confession is accept your penance. Now, why does the priest give us penance in confession? And the answer is, it's not some sort of, well, you got to pay for that sin. Okay, sometimes, sometimes we have to literally pay for a sin. If, for example, you have to make restitution, right? You know, that dog that I stole from you, Andrew, I got to give it back. Okay, now, um, there's no other way around it. I can't say I'm sorry for taking Andrew's dog. If I keep the dog, I have to bring the dog back. And maybe I can drop him off when you're not looking. So you don't know it's me. That would be fine. Or maybe I'll go to you and say, Andrew, look at, uh, I took your dog. Here it is back. I'm not going to do that again. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully you uh, being a, a good Christian, you're going to say, okay, well, if if you're sorry, I forgive you. And that's, uh, that's mm -hmm. how it works. We're all sinners. Um, now, the penance comes in because when we commit a mortal sin or any sin, we do two things. We offend God and we do damage to ourselves. Okay. This is what uh, the prophet said. My people have done two things. They have rejected me, the true God, and they've built to themselves cisterns. I'm the fount of living water. They've rejected me, and then they've built themselves cisterns that can hold no water. That's what happens in mortal sin. We say to God, look, at, I don't need you. Goodbye. And then they say, oh, look at uh, money, power, lust. You're going to make me happy. And uh, mm -hmm. this is damaging to ourselves. So you go to confession. The punishment for rejecting God is infinite. It's hell. And that is completely done away with. It's not uh, God doesn't say, well, you deserve hell. You know, I'll think about it. He says, no, no, you're sorry for your sins. That punishment's gone. However, the damage I've done to myself, that needs to be undone. And that's the temporal punishment. 
which is uh, done by, by penance. If I don't do it in this life, I'm going to need to do it in purgatory. That's when I heal the damage which I've done to myself by sin. And for someone who has supreme love for God, they don't even need to do penance. Somebody like Mary Magdalene, who committed uh, sins for years, let's say, she, she is truly sorry. Her, her sins are forgiven her because she loves much. She doesn't need to do penance for her sins. She does do penance for her sins, but she doesn't need to because her love for God is so strong that it's actually wiped away all of the uh, all of the sort of uh, inclinations towards sin, which penance is there to to wipe away. And that's why your penance normally should actually attack your fault. So you go to confession and you say, uh, "I'm greedy. I've committed the sin of greed." Okay, priest says to you, "Fast." Or, I don't pray. Priest says to you, pray. That's your penance. Or, uh, Father, I am uncharitable towards my neighbor. Uh, priest says to you, okay, do some acts of charity. I, Father, I never think about God. Do some spiritual reading. And these acts of penance are going to uh, repair the damage which you have done by sin. So those are the five steps to a good confession. Clearly, there are other things that you could, uh, plenty of details you could put in, but that's the basics for making a good confession. And um, I just finish off in a moment, perhaps, with the the person who is going to give you absolution, the, the minister of the sacrament of penance, and uh, explain how that works. Okay. Now, obviously, as the, the priest, spoiler, um, when we are talking about the, the power of absolution, Father, does that come to the priest by virtue of him being a priest and being ordained? Or is there some other way in which this power comes to the priest to be able to absolve sins? Right. Uh, very good question, Andrew. So it's, it's both, in fact. So in order to uh, be able to forgive sins, uh, the person must be a priest. Now, you could confess your sins to anybody. Uh, you, could, uh, you could say, well, I'm going to confess my sins to a deacon. And that is a confession, but the deacon cannot give you absolution. Um, and I suppose the thing about the sacrament of penance, the confession of your sins, is that not only will the priest give you forgiveness if you're truly sorry, but also psychologically it's of great help. You know, again, some people who are engaging in theology fiction will say, well, you know, clearly you're not actually having your sins forgiven. Let's face it. I mean, how could you have your sins forgiven by a man? Well, the man is acting as the instrument of Christ. That's how. But anyway, uh, but I can see the psychological benefit. And that's why non-Catholics or those who don't go to confession, well, they end up going to shrinks. They end up uh, lying on the psychiatrist's couch and confessing their sins, or uh, confessing whatever is going on. And this a confession of our sin is like, it's like vomiting. It's You've got this poison within you, which is sin, and you have to get it out. And so it, it, you vomit the sin out, and the priest is going to be able to repair the damage by giving you absolution and uh, forgiving you your sins. Now, that's why confession is not enough. And in fact, in extreme cases, confession is not even necessary. If I am one of those 10,000 soldiers ready to go over the top in the trenches in the First World War, um, the priest doesn't have time to hear all of our confessions, so he gives general absolution. And that absolution is valid, but I will need to confess my sins next opportunity I have for confession. Or I've just been hit in a car crash and I am not conscious. Uh, the priest sees in my wallet, I've got a little uh, tag saying I'm a Catholic. Uh, in case of accident, please call a priest. Says, well, this guy's a Catholic. I can give him absolution. And uh, I didn't confess my sins because I wasn't able to. What is necessary is my sorrow, at least habitual sorrow, because clearly I wasn't thinking of going to confession when I, I was in the car accident. But my habitual sorrow for sin. And the priest has to have the power of the priesthood, which is the power of order. He has to be an ordained priest, but he also needs the power of jurisdiction because the power to forgive sins 
comes from the jurisdiction of the Pope and the bishops to uh, to bind and to loose, to, uh, to bind the faithful to certain things, uh, such as the precepts of the church, and to loose the faithful from the bonds of sin. And this jurisdiction can be either given by the bishop, so each diocese, the bishop will give jurisdiction to the priests in the diocese to hear confessions, and he may limit that. Uh, the famous case in uh, Detroit was that of Father Solanus Casey, who was a priest, but he, he never heard a confession in his life because the bishop did not give him uh, permission either to preach or to hear confessions. He was a saint. Uh, he was a very saintly man, uh, but he, he didn't do these things. He had the power to do it, but the bishop did not give him the permission, the jurisdiction to do it, except okay. in certain cases where jurisdiction is given by law. And this is the case particularly in danger of death. So in danger of death, every priest in the world, whether he be good, bad, or indifferent, always has the power to uh, absolve from sin. So even though the priest may be an unfaithful priest, he may have left the priesthood, so to speak, and he may be now living as some sort of terrible person, well, he has the power to forgive sins in danger of death. And what's more, the person who is in danger of death has the right to call him. So let's imagine I have Padre Pio waiting by as I die, and I've also got Father Judas, who's a couple of doors down on the street. I can call Father Judas if I want to. The church gives me that, uh, that power because all the church wants is for me to save my soul. And this man, even if he's unfaithful, has the power to absolve from sin. Now, clearly, uh, you know, maybe I should rather call Padre Pio because he's uh, clearly closer to God. <laughs> Uh, but I may do both because he has the power given to him by law. And there are some other uh, cases given by law, which uh, I'm not going to go into today. But basically, that's it. I need the power of order to be a priest. And I need the power of jurisdiction given by the pope, given by the bishop, or else given by law. Well, Father, that's um, that's fascinating. Right. Thank you so for going through I that all just, with us. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Andrew. Um, apologies for that. It's just the connection is a little, uh, a little uh, <laughs> slow. But yeah, I wanted to wrap up on this beautiful sacrament of penance by giving a quote from Father Gary Goulagrange, who said that the Church, the body of Christ, so the the uh, the body of Christ which gives the life of Christ to us. The Church is not uh, an organization like any other. The church, he says, is intolerant in principle, but tolerant in practice. And the reason mm. it is intolerant in principle is because it believes, and it's tolerant in practice because she loves. It, so the church holds fast to the faith, holds fast to the doctrine of the faith, does not waver on these things. But then when people come and say, we've sinned, she doesn't go, oh, okay, I don't want anything to do with you. You're a nasty person. Rather, the church says, okay, are you sorry for your sins? And this sinful uh, child comes back to God through the church. Whereas the world, he says, is tolerant in principle, but intolerant in practice. And the reason it's tolerant in principle is because it does not believe, and it's intolerant in practice because it does not love. You can... Uh, you can think that the world says, yeah, you can believe whatever you want, but actually in practice, if you don't believe what they want you to believe and act as they want you to act, then you're a nasty person. You're, uh, you're somebody who stops women from uh, vindicating their rights over their body because you say abortion is wrong. And so in theory, you can believe whatever you want, but in practice, no. Whereas the church says, no, you must seek God. You must follow God. And if you fail, then go and repent. Confess your sins to Christ, to the ministry of the, of the priest. And then with his help, with God's help, you will again begin to live the Christian life. And that is the great, uh, the great beauty of the mercy of God, is God is merciful to us, not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it. Because we are sinners, right. and we are weak, and we are ignorant. Therefore, God is mercy on us. Whereas the devil will say, well, no mercy. 
it's because uh, he does not have the love. There's not one ounce of the love of God within him. And those who, who are along the same lines as the devil are the same. And so I would finish by encouraging all of us to have a great devotion and faith in the sacrament of penance, true confidence in the mercy of God, not a false confidence that thinks, well, I can sin and it doesn't matter. God is never going to punish me. But rather one that says, I am a sinner. I repent of my sins. God will forgive me. He will help me. That's beautiful. Father, thank you so much for taking the time to go through all this with us and and lay the groundwork um, for what we'll be looking at next week. And and could you give us a little preview of what we'll be discussing next week then, Father? So next week, we're going to look at the modern version of the sacrament of penance. And here, okay, we can look at some changes in the rite of uh, confession or the rite of the sacrament of penance. Uh, but also the change in attitude towards sin in general and the uh, the effective sidelining of the sacrament of penance as sin is sidelined, is that uh, those things that we used to think were sins, well, they're not anymore, and so we don't need to go to confession. So that will be quite interesting to see how uh, things have changed over the past 50, 60 years. Father, looking forward to it. Thank you again for taking the time with us today, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much, Andrew. You're very welcome.